Amen. Thank you for that. I appreciate that so much. Thank you, praise team. We're, we're grateful for that. Good to have you today in God's house on this beautiful, beautiful Sunday morning. Uh, not only did we lose an hour of sleep, we woke up to the sleet and the snow, but uh, it's the Lord's Day, and so we're going to rejoice and be glad in it and have the best we can. Even if, what I was thinking, half my family loves Duke and half my family loves UNC. So I got a house divided in my family, but, uh, but that was a great game last night, wasn't it? If some of you saw that, I wasn't going to stay up, but I stayed up for the whole thing, and then I had to conk out because I knew I lost an hour of sleep, but, uh, but it was a good day and a good, good evening. But today, we want to look into God's Word, Mark chapter 9, Mark chapter 9. While you're turning there, I'll mention a couple other things. We are starting the snack classes up tonight. We have our first step class too. If you're thinking about joining Triad, that class starts tonight at 5.30 as well. Someone around here can get you to the right room for that. But if you are considering membership, we'd love to have you in that class tonight. Um, uh, the Burnetts, Daryl called me uh, from Africa and said they're coming home in the summer for a few, I think six weeks, and they need a car. And so if you would be willing to uh, donate, I don't think they just want a car. I think they probably want an Sometimes SUV or minivan, uh, they have five in their family, but uh, somebody volunteered last time when we helped out Ronnie Morales, and I really appreciate that because uh, he needed a vehicle as well. So they'll be home for six weeks in the summer. I thought I'd mention that now. I read that in his prayer letter, and he talked about that, so we certainly want to help him out there if we can. All right, uh, stand with me now. Mark chapter 9, verses 2 to 9. Follow along now as I read. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and brought them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his garments became radiant and exceeding white, as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to answer, for they were terrified. Then a cloud formed, overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, In listen to him. All at once they looked around and saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. As they were coming down from the mountain, he gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. You may be seated. <clears throat> I've titled the message today, The Mountaintop Experience. The Mountaintop Experience. Jesus takes them up onto a high mountain. I don't know if you've ever had a high mountaintop experience. Uh, has anyone been to Mount Everest? Just out of curiosity, just wondered. You know, if you want to go to Mount Everest, you could probably have a spiritual experience by getting to that top of the mountain. It'll cost you, on average, just to do an expedition up to the top of Mount Everest, it'll cost you about $25,000. That's what it costs today to get to the top. All right, so there's a beautiful place to go. There's also uh, Mount McKinley in the Denali Park. I've been there. I was in an airplane there. Uh, we didn't, that's as close as we got to it, but we were about 10, 11,000 feet above the ground, and then that thing, that mountain's about 20,000 feet above the ground, highest mountain range in the uh, North Americas. And so it's an absolutely incredible place to go and incredible thing to see. There's also then, I've been to the base of Mount St. Helens in Washington. You don't want to go then, but um, 
that'd be a bad experience right there, but I went when that was all blown out, and then you have that hole around it, and it is quite an incredible sight to see uh, today. I've been to the top of Killington, Vermont, in the ski mountains there. You go up those mountains, you go up on a gondola, and absolutely breathtaking in that area of Vermont, an absolute beautiful state. And you get to the top, and they have a little sign on a chalkboard, and it says the temperature is 20 below zero at the top. And then with the wind chill, it's 38 below zero. So the first thing you want to do is not go down the mountain. You want to go in the chalet and get your hot cider and then get back down on the mountain. Absolutely breathtaking place to go. One of the funnest places I've been is Copper Mountain. I've been to a lot of the ski mountains in uh, Colorado, but Copper Mountain is one that sticks in my mind because a lot of those ski mountains, that's, that's not me in that picture, by the way. That's, uh, that's somebody who could ski a lot better than me. Um, one of the things that's amazing to do there is when you get up to those high elevations in the Rocky Mountains, you get to a place where the oxygen is so thin the trees can't grow. And so you get what are called bowls at the top of these ski mountains. And so in the bowls, then your ski lift or your gondola will go all the way to the top there and you're up on the bowl. And when you come off, and I'm thinking of Copper Mountain specifically right now because it overlooks then the whole Rocky Mountain range. It is religious. There is something about it when you get to the top of a mountain that my buddy and I, I was skiing with, there's several of us there, but it was he and I together. We just kind of stuck our skis in the snow and we laid back and we just stared. Before we went down the mountain, um, I think it was a two-mile run there, but before we even did that, we just sat there and talked about God. It just, the beauty and the overwhelming, awe-inspiring experience of being at the top of the mountain. How you could not see a God created that. And what is man that thou art mindful of him? It kind of just sticks in your mind of, wow, I'm nothing in relationship to this world and what God has done and its beauty. And that's kind of why people go to the tops of mountains. There's an experience there that is unlike any other. And so as I think about Jesus bringing his disciples high on a mountain, I often thought about this. If I lived back then, probably the one or two events that I would have liked to have seen with my own eyes was number one, the resurrection. I would have been probably like Thomas, and I would have had to fall on my knees and said, I believe, I believe my Lord and my God. And the second event I would want to see is the transfiguration. I would have loved to have been at the transfiguration because there's no other event like that where Jesus unveils his glory before the disciples. He doesn't even do it in his resurrected state like he did it on the Mount of Transfiguration. The only comparison we have is Revelation chapter 1, where it was a vision to John in the writing of the book of Revelation. And so this is an incredible passage of Scripture. And you have to understand why this passage falls where it does in the Bible, because it's part of Act 2, on the way, on the way to Jerusalem. And on the way, Jesus has told them very specifically a new aspect of himself that they missed in the whole Old Testament. They read the Bible, read the Bible, read the Bible, but they didn't see it. Isn't it amazing? You can read the Bible and not see something. And so Jesus said, I must suffer, I must be rejected, I must be killed, and I must rise from the dead. And they're like, no way. Yes, that's what's going to happen to me. And then if you want to follow me, you have to take up your cross you have to deny yourself and follow me. In other words, what I experience, you're going to experience in life. You're going to have to crucify your flesh because your flesh 
has some bad stuff in it. And so you're going to have to put that on the cross every time. You're going to blow up with your anger, and you're going to have to go back and make that right. Sometimes you're going to have to fight your tongue. Sometimes you're going to fight your eyes and what your eyes want to see. And you're going to have to do some crucifying of yourself. And Jesus said, you want to follow me? Start crucifying yourself. See how hard that is? And they're trying to take this all in, and Jesus knows that. So what he's going to do in this passage is he's going to take a moment just to kind of give him perspective. He's going to unveil his glory, and he's going to say, you need to see a small snapshot of what's coming in the future. And if you'll see this snapshot, it'll help you live today, and you'll be more faithful. So that's what I'm hoping will happen with you. If you get discouraged over something or something's got you really down, this is a great sermon to just kind of get a focus on what's going to come one day for you. Because here's Jesus' focus, okay? He's going to say this all the way on the way. Suffering first, glory later. Suffering first, glory later. So he's going to give them a small snapshot of that, of what it's going to be like when every knee bows, every tongue confesses, and sees Jesus Christ as Lord. So he's going to give a little taste of what's going to happen in Philippians 2 at the end of time. And he's going to say, let me just show you a little bit. So that will help you be motivated to know it's worth what you're doing. Because suffering first, glory later. And if you won't do that, you've got one of two options. Suffering first, glory later. Or the other option is comfort now, shame later. See, that's it. There's your two options. That's what you're going to experience. Comf- suffering now, glory later, or comfort now, shame later. And that's why he's calling you to just get focus here for a minute. Now, one thing I'm going to do in this message, just so you get this, is I'm only going to do one point because I realized I got so into point one that I have such a passion for you to get this. I'm going to do my best I can to explain it to you. All right, so here's the outline. How to hang on to the future to get through the present. I'll do point two and three at another next week. How to hang on to the future to get through the present. Number one is catch a glimpse of his glory. First thing you got to do is you've got to learn how to, in this life, right now in your life, catch a glimpse of his glory. It's got to be personal to you, just like it was personal to them. That's why this is written in the Bible, for you to get a feel of this and an understanding of this and to catch a glimpse of his glory. Now, the Bible says... In verse 2, it was six days later, six days later after you told them they had to suffer, be rejected, die, and raise from the dead. And it says six days later, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and brought them up on a high mountain by themselves. He was transfigured before them. Let's just stop there. Okay? He took his inner core of disciples, the intimates of Jesus. Now, why would three guys be favored over 12? Doesn't seem quite fair. Okay, there's lots of reasons for that, but let me just say this. Because those three guys would suffer the most. Suffering now, glory later. So he gives a glimpse to these three inner circles of his intimates because they're going to suffer the most. And like Peter's going to be crucified upside down. James, in the book of Acts, is going to be beheaded. John is going to be exiled for his whole life to live on an island of prisoners. So they're going to go through some incredible suffering. And so because of that, Jesus takes them away from the nine, and also he takes them away from the crowd, because if you remember the context, he was telling the whole crowd, you have to take up your cross and follow him. 
So he takes them away from the crowd and the nine. Now get it here, okay? Okay, because this is the principle that I want you to see. And I better look up my notes to make sure I get it right. If you're not willing to leave the crowd, you cannot see the one. So he takes them into a high mount, up into a high mountain. I think it is, he's still near Caesarea Philippi. And uh, I think Caesarea Philippi is the city right at the base of the highest mountain in that area, which is Mount Hebron. And so I think he took him to Mount Hebron, but we don't know for sure because he just says he took him up to the high mountain. But he was in the area of Caesarea Philippi. Now, if you remember, down at the base of Caesarea Philippi was a Roman city where the demons... It's a, tro- a trove, uh, just a trove of demons that ha- hung out there, and there was all kinds of demonic worship through time there at this place. It's a very wicked place, and this is where the gods were believed to hang out of the Romans, and then also Caesar, the son of God, was to be the one that would be honored at this place. And so it was a very wicked place, and if you remember, at the base of it, it is called the gates of hell. The gates of hell. That was what the term they would use in that day. So Jesus goes up to the highest part of the mountain. And the Bible says in the midst and the edge of their despair that they're seeing Jesus have to die. It's blowing all their expectations. And they themselves have to die. They're in the midst of despair. And so what Jesus does is he transfigures before them. Now all it says in the Bible is he is transfigured. And then it jumps to talking about his clothes becoming radiant and exceeding white as no launderer on earth can whiten them. (laughs) He just kind of jumps over that word transfigured, and I need to stop there and explain that. But the truth is, if you have a change in your raiment, your clothes, okay, if you have a change in your clothes, it assumes there was a change in your body and your face. His body glowed white. His face glowed white. Okay, and that so affected him, Mark did not know how to, uh, what I should say is Mark was at a loss to describe this event. And so the most he could talk about was the clothes on Jesus being bright in whiteness. But understand, it's not the clothes that are the focus, it's what's inside of the clothes. So get that in your heart, clothes don't make the man. Okay, the man makes the clothes. You've got you to keep that in the back of your mind. When the man changed, the clothes reflected that change. So let's look at this word transfigured for just a moment because I'm going to camp on it for a little bit because I don't think I've ever explained it to this extent. You got their transfiguration. He was transfigured before them. That's the Latin translation for us. It's two words, trans and figure. Trans and figure. And in Latin, trans means to cross over or to change over. And figure means form. So, Jesus changed form. He changed form. All right? That that would be the Latin rendering of that. But in the Greek, it is the word you'd be more familiar with, metamorphosis. Now, I didn't say it in the Greek. I just said it in the English. Metamorphosis. Meta is a word which means beyond. Beyond. Okay? And uh, the word morph. You know the word morph? It's really a word we've kind of borrowed from a lot of the Japanese culture where things morph, okay? So that's why the Power Rangers became so big years ago. Power Rangers are going to morph and become the mighty 
what are they called, the Mighty Megazord or something. I don't know what they are when they become a team, but they're the Mighty Megazord, the Power Rangers. They morphed into these powerful beings. All right? And then you got, what, the Autobots and the Transformers, okay? And Optimus Prime, he's now got, let's roll! And he transforms into this, and now they take on Megatron. All right, can you just see it? I've been around my grandkids too long, okay? So uh, anyways, you, you kind of have these dramatic things happening where, where they morph over into another form. Okay, now, uh, what you should even add to it then is the way you understand it in nature, a dramatic change that takes place when the caterpillar becomes the butterfly. It's hard to explain that. It metamorphs. It goes beyond who it was as a caterpillar and changes form into a butterfly. Metamorph, all right? Um, or a tadpole becomes a frog. The, frog uh, the tadpole morphs and goes across form, beyond form, into a frog. All right, so we're getting closer to what this means, all right? So the person of Jesus moves changes over, transforms from one form to another. All of his life, his glory has been veiled and zipped up in his human skin so that you could never see who he really was. You could only see his flesh. Now before the disciples, he is bursting forth in the full deity of Christ in pure, brilliant whiteness. His face becomes brilliantly white, his body becomes brilliantly white, and they see it through the effects of his clothes. So it's a picture, it's a picture of what's going to happen at the end of the age when every eye will see him, the triumphant, glorified Christ. And you'll see him when you look at him like in the intensity of the sun. This week I just, my mom used to tell me, don't stare at the sun for five minutes, you'll go blind. And so I was always terrified to look at the sun too long because of that. I never forgot that. And so this week I went outside and I decided to look at the sun for 30 seconds. So I went out and looked for 30 seconds directly at the sun and I never moved for about 30 seconds. I, I don't know for sure one time in it because I couldn't see. So when I looked away, I couldn't see anything. It, everything was whited out. Everything was whited out. And it took like 15 seconds for my vision to come back and to be able to see. And that's why it's often described of the transfiguration of the intensity of the sun for Jesus Christ. So his face changes into this brilliant whiteness and uh, it impacts these disciples that are there. In other words, for Jesus, he's saying, I'm the same person, but it's not me. Okay? It won't be familiar, but it will be me, just different. You'll recognize me, but you know, won't recognize me like you did. I'm going from a silkworm to a butterfly. I can do that. I can go from a silkworm to a butterfly just like that. Like a tadpole goes to the prince of peace. Biologically, it's me, uh, but it's not me. Same DNA, different presentation. I'm spinning out of my body. I'm Jesus coming out of my cocoon that's been veiled over me for all of these years that I've been with you. We thought you could only walk like a caterpillar, but now you can fly and float like a butterfly in this dimension, in this dimension. 
The idea would be that Jesus is not who I thought he was. And that's why I'm telling you. You've got to see Jesus like this somewhere in your life where you get a glimpse of his glory and you understand that you need some mountaintop experiences where you see Jesus in a way you've never seen him before. This is one of those from the Bible to try to help you a little bit, and I'm going to try to do the best I can to help you a little bit, okay? Jesus doesn't look like what I thought, okay? I'm on a new level. The Jesus I knew at the bottom of the mountain is not the Jesus I know at the top of the mountain. The Jesus I knew at the bottom of the mountain was going to suffer and be rejected and be killed and raised from the dead. But this Jesus is a Jesus I've never known on the top of the mountain. You've got to have experiences like that in your life. Now, I'm not saying go out there and look for them. They come from in here. As you read this Word of God, it transforms you because you see a transformed Jesus for who He really is. And this is, this is very important to understand, okay? So his face shines with this blinding intensity. If you look in the Bible, you'll find someone else's face shown with a blinding intensity. Moses. This happened to Moses. He begged God. He said, God, God, please let me see your glory. And God denied him and said, no, you can't see. You can't see my glory because if you see my face, you'll never live. You'll never live. No one can see my face and live. But I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll carve a niche in the rock. Now, what was that rock? That was the rock when they went down to Kadesh Barnea. They just kept coming back to the rock, and they walked around for 40 years. And every time they'd come back to that rock, and water came out of that rock, and provision came out of that rock, and Moses had to speak to the rock. And over and over, they kept coming back to the rock because in the Bible, 1 Corinthians 10 tells us later, that rock was Christ. It was the mysterious presence of Christ in a rock. And they kept coming back to the rock for their need. This is a, a glimpse of his glory. Okay? So he says, what I'll do is I'll, I'll carve, I'll cut into my rock. I'll carve into my rock, and I will put you in the cleft of that rock. That is, within the person of my son, Jesus Christ, if you will. That's, that's the way it's to be understood. Now, I'll place you in that rock, a place of safety. And in that place of safety, I'll pass by you. Because if you saw me completely, you would be disintegrated, is the idea of the text. And he doesn't say, my glory will pass by you. Listen to this. You know what he says in Exodus 34? My goodness will pass by you. Because inside of the whiteness of Jesus, the brilliant whiteness of Jesus, is his glory, his glory. And what is his glory? It is his goodness. What does he say in Exodus 34? It is his mercy. This is the brilliance of his whiteness, of his mercy, and the brilliance of the whiteness of his grace, and his forgiveness for iniquity, and to cover sin. All those things are involved in the goodness of God and it's expressed in pure whiteness because the pure whiteness is what is the characteristics within Jesus that show that when they come out. So Moses uh, gets into the cleft of the rock and Jesus, or God the Father, passes by and Moses gets a glimpse of the backside of God's glory and the experience is so intense, Moses' face glows. 
Now Moses' face, the Bible said, shone like the sun. It was a sign to all the other people that he had been in the presence of God. Now, I just want to ask you, this is a little aside, okay? Can people see your face and sense you've been with God? His face, hear it, okay? His face reflected, Moses' face reflected the radiance of God. Now note this, okay? The light in the face of Moses was a reflected light. Moses was not the source of the light, but the radiant glory of God rebounded. It, it kind of rebounded off of Moses and his face glowed. Off the face of the creature. The creature glows because the glory of God has hit it and bounced off him. Okay? This didn't happen in the transfiguration. The radiant glory of the glorified Christ indicates not a reflected light, okay? It's not a reflected light, but the, He is the source of the light. In other words, it indicates that coming from within Christ Himself is this glorious, reflected, powerful light that is internal to Jesus, that is inherent in His glory, bursting forth in that moment on the mountain. That's why Hebrews 1 says, the brightness of His glory. The brightness of His glory. These, Jesus, doesn't ref, Jesus doesn't just reflect the glory of God. He is the glory of God. That's the difference between Moses and Jesus. He is the pillar of fire in the wilderness. He is the bright light that came from heaven, slapped Paul off his horse, and knocked him blind. Same, same guy. That's glory in the Bible. That's goodness in the Bible. In Hebrew, the word glory literally means weightiness or heaviness. The weightiness of God in His glory can knock you off your horse. So out of Christ's divine nature comes this flood of divine light that is perfectly white. So Mark is trying to figure out, how do I communicate this? I just tried everything I could to communicate that to you, but Mark's struggling to communicate it because he got his testimony from Peter. So Peter's telling him the story, and Peter says, I don't know how to describe this to you. All I can say, it's not like a white I've ever seen in my life. Well, I can't write that down. He said, I'm telling you, Mark, it is otherworldly. It is otherworldly. Mark says, how am I going to describe that? And so all Mark can do is describe the clothes. What does he say? Verse 3, his garments became radiant and exceeding white as no launderer earth can whiten them. Now that's, that's an interesting way to say it because he's trying to put to words what's happening here at this moment. The fabric of his garment was metamorphosized. Not only was his body metamorphosized, but the, it went right through the fabric and the fabric began to glow in a white that P Peter had never seen before and Mark couldn't describe. He said, the best I can do is a, is a cleaner at a store that takes, back in that day, they would take pickle weed and they would cut up the pickle weed and they would burn it and turn it to ash. Then they would take the ash and it was water soluble and they would mix it with water and it would, they'd make like a bleach formula. They still do this today in Israel. 
And so they would make this bleach water and they would take the wool that they wanted to to uh, bleach white and they would pour it on the wool and then they would go through the field and they would stamp, they'd stomp their feet all over to try to push out the impurities with that bleach product that they had created. And that's, that's the best that Mark can do with this. And uh, he's thinking about this and he's thinking, how do I communicate this? And Peter says, I don't know. It's just an otherworldly white. Because he knows the launderer can never get pure white. Because his feet are dirty. And no dirty feet can make a white pure. Because all our righteousness is his filthy rags. There's no unrighteous, no, not one. Our righteousness, the best we can do is a, is a stench in the nostrils of God. It's filthy. You're going to need a white that can cleanse you deeper than what you can do by your own efforts or by your own thoughts. You're going to need something far more powerful than that. You're going to need the blood of Jesus Christ to wash away your sins because it's the only thing that can make you pure white. Pure white. There's never been a white like this. Not white as snow. No, no, the songwriter was so right. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Whiter than snow. It's beautiful. It's beautiful to think about because there's nothing on earth that can do that to you. Only Jesus can make you whiter than snow. Jesus' whiteness is so bright, it makes our whiteness look dark. A.W. Tozer. Now, i got to back up, okay? That was pretty intense right there, okay? So I'm just going to back up, just relax a little. Okay, let me just, let me just try to illustrate this. Now, the problem I'm going to do in my illustration here is that you probably need to be in about 10th grade, at least have taken physical science or physics to get this, but I'll do my best. All right. What color is a lemon? Good. What color is a lime? Green. What color is a lemon? What color is a lime? Right? Two out of two say it's green for the lime, and two out of two say it's yellow for the lemon. From that perspective, you'd be right. But let's ask a philosophical question. I wrote it down here. I want you to hear it, okay? Here's a philosophical question. Is a lemon really, a le- is, is a lemon really yellow? Is a lime really green? Now think about that for a minute. Philosophers argue about this, and rightfully so. They say, can you see yellow in absolute darkness? Can you see green in absolute darkness? If you take all the light out of the area, you don't have a yellow lemon anymore, and you don't have a green lime. I brought these here just to illustrate that for you for just a moment. You see yellow, and you see green right now. What philosophers say about color, and even physicists say about color, is that color is not primary to the lemon, it's not primary to the lime, it is secondary. It is secondary. In other words, it is not inherent in the substance, but it is something added to the substance. How? By the presence of light by the presence 
of light. White light, white light refracts. You know what that means? It bends. As you send light to the earth from the sun, it bends. And when it bends, it goes into a different color. And when it bends upon a lemon, it causes the speed of light to change, which produces a yellow tint. The speed of light hitting this green lime right now causes it to be green, which is absolutely amazing to think about for just a minute. So where does color come from then? It comes from the light of the sun, not from what is inherent in these objects. It comes from the light of the sun. Where all the hues of the rainbow are found, in the pure white light of the sun. If you refract, if you bend light, you get the rainbow. As it passes through moisture, it bends, and as it bends, it changes color. You add all those refracted colors together in the purity of light, and you get absolute whiteness. You get absolute whiteness. Stay with me, okay? I had to read this book when I was in 10th or 11th grade, and I didn't really read it that well. I got the cliff notes. But now as I'm older and I've gone back and read it, I believe this. It is the most profound, the most profound chapter in American literature ever written by a human pen without divine inspiration. I'm convinced of this is Herman Melville's Moby Dick. Moby Dick. Moby Dick is a huge white whale. A huge white whale. And the main character of the story, does anybody know the first line of Moby Dick? I thought I heard it. Close. I am Ishmael. I am Ishmael. First line of the book. That is so important to understand in the whole book. Now, Moby Dick is full of metaphor and figurative, but, but I'm not going to go into all that except, like, for example, Moby Dick the white whale represents government. Okay? So he goes, he's a fisherman. He goes out fishing with his crew, and uh, he falls into the water, and Moby Dick comes up and swims and bites off his leg. Bites off the, the man's leg. Puts him back in the boat, and back in those days, the only thing they had to make prosthetic legs with were whalebone. So they take the whalebone and make a leg for Ishmael. So he's walking around a limp like this. Now remember, in the metaphor of Moby Dick, the government is the white whale. That probably makes sense to you. It bites your leg right off, doesn't it? But uh, anyways, Ishmael vows revenge. I will find that whale and I will kill that whale. That's his life story. It's a fascinating story. And so he goes out and he tells his crew they don't want to go. They don't want to fight a whale. And he says, you're going, and if anybody spots the whale first, I'll give them uh, riches of gold. I've got ounces of gold down in my chest here, and I'll give them to him. So the whole crew gets on the boat. They go with him. They're out there, and one of his crew members spots it. He gives them the gold, and there they see Moby Dick, the white whale. Now, before he goes on to take the white whale on, which he loses, by the way. I'll tell you, that's the end of the story, but it's worth reading. Okay, before he loses that battle, the amazing thing is Melville writes a chapter, chapter 42, 
about this whale. And it's, it's called, the chapter's called, The Whiteness of the Whale. Now, that's not by accident because he's using this image. He has figured out something about white that I think actually has great application to theology. But he figures something out about white, and he writes it into his story, the whiteness of the whale. Go home and read this afternoon. There's nothing else to do. It's just going to rain, okay? Just read it. You'll have to read it three times before you actually get it because it's written in English in a way that we were never trained to read English. But it's fascinating, all right? And... Uh, you can tell when you read the chapter, this guy has traveled the world. He's from New York City. He traveled the world, and he saw every culture and every uh, portion of people around the world, and so he writes a chapter based on what he sees in the white of the world. He travels the world, and he witnesses this. He says, whiteness, I don't care where you go, there is something inherent in us that enhances beauty. The Lord of the white elephants is the kings of Siam. The Austrian Empire, for their symbol, uses the white, the snow white charger. The Romans have the white stone to mark a day of joy. The American Indians of the U.S. have the white belt of wampum, the pledge of honor. The Persian fire worshipers can get fire so hot they called it white hot fire with the forked flame. In other words, the fire goes from yellow to orangish to blue, but when you get it the hottest you can get it, only the Persians could do this, they would get it white hot. We can get it white hot today uh, with the burning of uh, fire, but they call it the white hot flame. Greek mythology, they have the snow white bull. Now, I'm not going into it like Melville. I'm just hitting the highlights here, okay? And he wrote a little better than I do. The Iroquois Indians sacrifice every year the sacred white dog. The priests put on their white holy vestures to represent God. Twenty-four elders stand at the great white throne. The pure chaste bride always dresses in white. It's in your psyche. White is in your psyche. Redness is not like that. The color red affrights in blood. Affrights. That's the way he that's the word he uses. Affright brings fear. But not white. He talks about the white polar bear and the white shark off the coast of France and the albatross bird and the Antarctic fowl and the white steed and the white tower of London and the white cliffs of Dover and the white Milky Way. And on and on he goes in this chapter. And it's absolutely amazing because when you're done reading it, you almost get like a theology of white. I've never known anybody to do that. Jesus manifests his deity, deity in the purity of whiteness that contains no spot, no wrinkle, no blemish. And the manifestation of his whiteness overwhelms us. We can't even put it to words. It's otherworldly. It's otherworldly. Now the Bible says Moses and Elijah appear at this moment and they talk with Jesus. What are they talking about? Mark doesn't tell us. Luke tells us that they're talking about what's waiting for Jesus in Jerusalem. Jesus, you're going to suffer in the affrighting color of red. Because when you see blood on someone, it frightens you. That's what you're going to see and face. Now Moses and Elijah knew he had to die, and they knew why he had to die for their sin. 
and for the sins of the world and everyone with that to put their faith and trust in him. That's, that's why he had to die. So they're there to tell him, your destiny was predicted by Moses, predicted by Elijah and all the prophets of the Old Testament. And we've come to encourage you and, and just kind of boost you up as you go to face this cross. We want to comfort you, Jesus. Thank you for dying for us. Now, there's so many reasons it was Moses and Elijah that show up. They're the only two that ever had theophanies on a high mountain of God. That's one reason. There's more than that, but I'm not, I don't have time here this morning. Uh, um, but I want you to understand this because the Bible says the Messiah must be the prophet like Moses. He must be like Moses. And then he must have an appearance like Elijah in the future at the dawning of the end of time. So, I'm just going to simplify this without going into any more detail than that. Moses, Moses is all that God was to Israel. Moses is all that God was to Israel. And Elijah is all that God will be for his followers. Because before the Messiah can come, Elijah must come. He must come. So, Moses represents eternity past. Elijah represents eternity future, but Jesus represents eternity now, forevermore, forevermore. Now, I'm not going to go into point two and three. I'm just going to kind of close this out right here. Jesus said, or, or the Bible says in verse seven, that the voice came out of the cloud. The cloud overshadowed Moses, Elijah, and Jesus and the father said, this is my beloved son, listen to him. All at once they looked around and saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. All of a sudden, that's the word immediately. Anytime you see the word immediately, there's something important happening. Immediately, all of that was gone. You, you saw no one anymore but Jesus. The voice is silent, the clouds lift, Moses is gone, Elijah's gone. The air is no longer filled with the divine. Jesus' face is not shining. His clothes are normal. All there is is Jesus seen only in his humanity. Worship begins when you only see Jesus. Take away the glory, take away the magnificence. But you must first worship by seeing only Jesus. A real mountaintop experience begins when you see Jesus only. They saw him in magnificence. They saw him in grace. They saw him in splendor. They saw him in wonder. In his true, pure, white essence and power of divinity. But that's all gone. That's all gone now. And Jesus says, let's go. Let's get off this mountain. I got to go to my calling I got to go to my betrayal. I got to go to my cross. I got to go to my death. That's why we came here today and proclaimed the death of Jesus. Because without that in his humanity, we got nothing. We got nothing. So, what am I saying to you today, okay? Maturity begins in your life. Maturity begins when you see Jesus only in his humanity. Maturity begins when you see Jesus only. 
in his humanity. It's not glamorous because it's not going to be glamorous in your life. But his presence is still with us. You rest on that no matter what you face. Let's pray. Father, we come before you at this moment now and I recognize the worth of your words and the power of them to speak to us in the middle of our suffering. You've given us a brief snapshot to hold on to, to motivate us to live as you would have us live. So I want to pray over each child of God in this room that has confessed you as Lord and Savior. And I want to ask God you'll draw them to this mountaintop experience and they'll use it as a base of operation to motivate them in faithfulness because they're going to face some horrific things, some difficult things that no one on this earth can help them with. But help them to worship when they see Jesus only. Take away the friends. Take away the spouse. Take away the family. Just give me Jesus. May that be our heart's cry when we need a glimpse of who you really are. Well, thank you for it today, Lord. We pray you be honored in this time now. I ask it in Jesus' name.